With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's Ryan Marine and Dan Lloyd. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365's weekly sports car racing podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine, Dan Lloyd. Joining us from the UK, our intrepid WEC correspondent. He was uh, on site at Silverstone covering the WEC and European Le Mans series, which both were racing at Silverstone over the weekend. How are you doing, Dan? Very well, thanks, Ryan. Yeah, busy, busy weekend. Looking forward to uh, getting into it, explaining it all. Tons for us to recap. We'll have to hustle through it to some degree for time purposes, but WEC and ELMS, like I mentioned, at Silverstone, we had Blancpain GT World Challenge Europe racing at the Nürburgring, Blancpain GT World Challenge America racing at Watkins Glen, and uh, several other SRO America series at Watkins Glen, too, that we'll try and make a brief reference of before we move on from the recap portion of the show. Then we'll get into the news with... A fun hypercar roundup because uh, we've got a lot coming out of the various manufacturers and constructors that are in the hypercar discussion at this stage. Some other WEC news as well, plus a little bit uh, of an IMSA tidbit. We've got an interview with Richard Leitz, who was part of the winning crew in GTE Pro at uh, Silverstone in the WEC. So we'll hear from him. And we'll wrap things up with listener questions at the end of the show this week. But uh, let's start in Silverstone. Dan, you were there, as I mentioned. We'll uh, begin our conversation surrounding the WEC race there where Toyota scored a 1-2. We've all been waiting to see how the different changes with uh, the the ballast and, and various other technical changes that the series put into place trying to bring the privateer non-hybrid cars to the level of Toyota or maybe more accurately bring the Toyotas down to the level of the non-hybrids. We saw some encouraging pace early in the weekend, but ultimately it was Toyota that was uh, was the dominant team with the 1-2 finish. What did you make of it? Yeah, the early indications, uh, even stretching back to the prologue preseason test in Barcelona last month, and, and as you said, Ryan, going into practice, made it look as though the non-hybrid entries from Rebellion uh, and even Janetta with the, the factory team LNT effort uh, would, uh, would would challenge Toyota for the overall win on track. Uh, that turned out not to be the case. Uh, Toyota registered a pretty comprehensive one too, as you said. Um, but I don't think that it was an unexpected result in, in the grand scheme of things. Um, we, we have had some changes to the uh, equivalence of technology that's designed to sort of bring the hybrid Toyotas and the non-hybrid prototypes uh, a bit closer together, but I, I personally wasn't too optimistic that it was going to create any on-track battles between the two. Um, I think uh, at Silverstone Toyota's new um, new aero package was just going to be a bit too strong um, with with the downforce it was providing them. The the extra grip of the track surface probably maybe helped them a bit more with their four-wheel drive, um, and and just generally it's been a it's been a strong track for toyota even in the uh, even in the eras of inter-hybrid competition so um they yeah the, the, it ended up being a fairly comprehensive victory um however it was interesting to see the uh, the non-hybrids coming on strong the new track surface helping quite a lot to reduce lap times everywhere but i thought it was very interesting how 
rebellion in the race uh, last year were two seconds off the pace in terms of fastest laps. This year, that was less than a second. It was about eight tenths. Um, so gains have been made uh, by the non-hybrids and Janetta as well, putting on a, a fairly respectable showing. There were issues, but I think, you know, the, the, that's to be expected in a program that's been dormant for so long. Um, but yeah, I think the big the big question is what's going to happen at the next round at Fuji. How will the success handicap system, as it's called, impact the race there and and uh, hopefully close the gap i think perhaps the silverstone race could be considered maybe a form of form of purgatory and uh, hopefully the uh, the system will provide us with the necessary technical changes to get over this sort of first hump this necessary hump to make sure that we get what we've been waiting for for a year and a half now a nice close lmp1 on track battle well pull back the curtain if you could and let us into the arcane different factors, I guess, that go into this success handicap. I know you've been trying to, to get to the bottom of what it's going to look like by the time we get to the second round of the championship. Do you have a sense for what we're going to see based on the results and the pace shown by the various uh, LMP1 cars at Silverstone? To an extent, um, it, it, I think I think it can be figured out. Um, the, the, only th- the only issue is um, what we currently have in LMP1 are two separate points tables um the and the success handicap is actually dictated by neither of the points tables despite being a championship points based system i'll try and explain that in the best way i can um so essentially what we've got for the lmp1 um entrance is the drivers world championship and the uh, lmp1 teams championship that replaced the old manufacturers championship when uh, porsche left the success handicap system actually works on a car by car basis so it's all based uh, around the t- the car that is last in the standings, but we don't have a car standings. Um, and we we sort of racked the brain of uh, Pascal Vasselon, who's the technical director of Toyota Gazoo Racing, and he said that there is actually going to be a car-based table. Whether that's going to be publicly shared or not, we don't know. Um, but essentially, points will go into that car-based table, um, and that will be used to dictate where the success handicaps are dished out. All that considered, um, hope you're still with me, all that considered, um, we can assume that the 7 Toyota, which won at Silverstone, um, got uh, 26 points because it also took pole. And the number six Ginetta, which finished last of the points-paying LMP1 cars, something we'll get to later, one of the cars didn't actually earn points, just to complicate things further, that would have received... 10 points. Um, So the gap between 26 points and 10 points is 16. Um, Then we put that into a pre-made equation, which will be used for all races, which is the points difference. So 16 multiplied by the length of the next track on the calendar in kilometers, which is Fuji. So that's 4.563 kilometers off the top of my head. And then that's all multiplied by what's called a correction factor or a coefficient, zero, which is 0.008 kilometers per second. So once you put all of that through the system, you get a figure, which is however many seconds each car will be made slower compared to the last place car in the standing. So based on my rough calculations, the 7 Toyota will be about six tenths slower for Fuji. Um, and that sort of goes on a, a sliding scale down the points uh down down the points table um so it sounds really complicated but actually when you sort of get down to the mass of it there are fewer calculations you need to make uh compared to the eot table of old of last season so um hopefully it works it gives us a 
uh, a pretty simple way of looking at it. So seven car is this amount slower for the next race. The eight car is this amount slower. Um, and that difference is carried out by uh, undertaking various changes to fuel flow and weight, which we don't really need to know about. So the end of the day, it, the main question is, will it work? Uh, we don't know yet. That's going to be something we have to wait for and uh, see at Fuji, which um, is historically a, a strong track for, for Toyota anyway. It's home track. So we'll see how it plan pans out. Hopefully that made some sense to you, Ryan, for somebody who wasn't at Silverstone. But um, yeah, it, it's a, a new approach and something that we're all going to take a bit of getting used to, I think. I'll admit my eyes glazed over a little bit as you were trying to explain that. That is beyond... <laughs> I do apologize. <laughs> it's not your fault. It was well explained, but it's beyond my ability to comprehend uh, when you start throwing out words like coefficient. I'm pretty well lost. So uh, glad that we have you on staff to sort all this out. I'm sorry that the burden has fallen on your shoulders, but someone had to do it, and Dan's our guy. So uh, for all of your in-depth success handicap coefficients and uh, various other calculations find dan on twitter he'll answer your questions all right that's enough lmp1 discussion for this uh, particular podcast let's go to lmp2 it was uh, an interesting story i think with cool racing picking up the win in lmp2 in their first ever appearance in the wec lmp2 ranks and it was not a straightforward weekend for the team they ended up having to do it with two drivers instead of the three that they had planned yeah, really nice story, this actually. Cool Racing, uh, a, a Swiss team uh, running the Orica 07 Gibson. Uh, they, they were entering both the ELMS and WEC races this weekend. So, you know, enough of, it's enough of a challenge it being your WEC debut. But to add an ELMS race onto the same weekend and the two paddocks are fairly spaced out at Silverstone on opposite ends of the track. It's a really, really tough, tough weekend for them. And it, it started in the worst possible way, really, in the ELMS race because there was a, a, a collision between the cool car and the Duquesne engineering Orica, um, which un unfortunately, uh, Alexander Quagny, uh, who's the bronze rated driver in the lineup was, uh, w was injured. He was able to come to the circuit on Sunday to cheer the team on, but he was ruled out of the WEC race. Um, so that left Nico Lapierre and Antonin Borger to do the job as a duo. And they performed admirably. They, they emerged out front, um, just cons consistently pounding around. And uh, by, by the end of it, they had a 50-second advantage over the very experienced Signatech Alpine team. So, uh, yeah, don't think anyone really expected that. And it uh, will definitely be following Cole's progress in the next few races. Could be a little bit of a dark horse, that car. Let's briefly get uh, your recap of what we saw in the GTE ranks. Uh, yeah, so GTE, Porsche 1-2 and GTE Pro could have been a bit different. Uh, I think Ferrari felt a bit hard done by. Uh, they were they were handed a penalty for overtaking a car under safety car, which was later cancelled as the Ferrari was trundling down pit lane, so they lost a bunch of time. Uh, same could be said for Aston Martin's 98 crew in GTM. They ended up finished second. Similar story. They took the penalty when they didn't need to. That um help the 83a of course of ferrari to take the win um so uh, a new winner in gtm porsche doing its thing getting the one two with its new car and we'll hear from richard leitz a bit later on yes absolutely so uh how about elms then let's uh, switch the focus to the other race of the weekend at silverstone g drive had been the dominant team in lmp2 but uh, their run of success comes to an end when they ultimately had to run down pit road for a little splash of fuel late in the race. 
Yeah, the LMS race is always always exciting, and and I do really like the fact that we get to have this uh, four hours of Silverstone on the same weekend as the WEC, because you know n- not everyone who goes to the WEC race might not be uh, an ELMS fan or too aware of it, but you know you get to see some really really good racing as uh, as a support race. It's one of the best ones out there. But you're right, Ryan. Yeah, G Drive Racing, uh, the strategy didn't quite work out for them. Roman Rusinov, Jean Van and Job Van Oyter, however, probably won't be too disappointed with second. I mean they've they they were on on course for a third victory of the season, but they still extend their lead at the top of the drivers' championship because they finished ahead of the 39 Graf car, which is their main challenger. But uh, the winner was Edexport. Really interesting um, story there. Their first ever uh, race win um, in anything I want to say um, with uh, Paul Lafargue, Paul Lupin, and Memo Rojas finally sort of converting some of the single lap pace that car has had into a consistent run. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a cracking race. And uh, the LMS, again, offering some great competition. However, we, we have two, two former Ligia entries going to Orica, um, 07 Gibsons for this race. That's sort of been a bit of a trend in global LMP2 racing recently. Um, be sure to keep an eye out on Sportscar 365 for some, some reaction about those uh, industry movements couple other notes on that ELMS race class winners. In LMP3, it went to Inter-Europol. Meanwhile, in the GTE class, Proton Competition took the victory there. So our recap can be found at Sportscar 365 if you want more on the ELMS race at Silverstone. And while you and Jake were on site at Silverstone, I know you each had an eye on what was going on with the Blancpain GT World Challenge Europe, a couple of races at the Nürburgring over the weekend. Yeah, so uh, it, it was non-stop really for for those following European sports car racing. These these races sort of happened uh, du- during the sessions and the we- uh, during the WEC sessions and over the course of the weekend. So it was literally non-stop action. Um, yeah, we had a couple of exciting. Andrea Calderelli and Marco Mapelli won uh, race one to take the points lead. They were driving for Orange One FFF team. That team's been really impressive over the course of the year. Calderelli, who's the who's the team boss, effectively has put together a rich. Um, they ended up winning race one. Race two was arguably the more dramatic of the two. Um, our motorsport uh, took its first victory in the Blancpain GT World Challenge Europe um, as a result of a clash between two of the uh, uh, WRT Audis uh, on track. And we, we, all, we all know that you shouldn't be, shouldn't be uh, clashing with your teammate when you're in an on-track battle for, for the lead. But unfortunately, that happened for WRT and uh, our motorsport, the main beneficiary there and uh, Ricky Collard and Marvin Kershaw for taking a, a victory that's hasn't really been a long time coming for our motorsport quite a new team on the block but uh, nonetheless uh, certainly a good way for them to open their account yes and again that recap can be found at the website too I was in Watkins Glen we had Blancpain GT World Challenge America racing there along with Pirelli GT4 America and uh, the touring car classes Celine Cup was there too but to focus on the GT3 ranks, it was a big, big weekend for our Ferry Motorsport, which swept the weekend courtesy of Tony Vlander and his partner for the weekend, Daniel Serra, who uh, took a break from his Brazilian uh, stock car season where he's leading the championship. He's the two-time defending Brazilian stock car champion and leading right now in pursuit of a third championship. He came up and joined the Ferrari squad, something he's got plenty of experience doing and uh, was really on it right away. Tony Vlander was pretty much classic Tony, and the Ferrari was the, the class of the field through much of practice and qualifying outside of a great lap from Alvaro Parent, which took pole for race number one for the K-Pax Bentley team. But 
really it was uh, the first race the, the the story of it really was it happened in pit lane the r ferry team had a very fast pit stop the k-pax team rather uncharacteristically had a slow pit stop and it allowed the ferrari to get out in front of the bentley and uh, tony and, and daniel cruz to a victory from there a little less straightforward in race two despite starting on pole the Ferrari of Vlander in this instance and uh, the Bentley of Maxime Soule made some contact on the opening lap that sent the Bentley spinning. Race Control took a look at it, elected not to make any kind of um, assessment of blame. They let that uh, go unpunished, and I think that was the right call for what it's worth. And uh, from there, Tony and Daniel were able to, to pull away despite some pressure from behind from Alvaro Parent in the second stint on Daniel Serra. Ultimately, there was nothing he can do, and it was a big weekend for the championship there for the Ferrari, which finished ahead of its closest pursuers, the Bentleys, in both of the races. It was a double podium for the K-Pax team in both races, as uh, Sule and Rodrigo Baptista had a nice recovery drive to finish third in race number two. But the couple of wins for our ferry were critical to extending Tony Vlander's championship lead, which he now holds by himself after Miguel Molina was forced to miss the weekend to race at Silverstone in the WEC, which we've had plenty of stories about on SportsCar 365, including a story with Miguel talking about the call-up to race the GTE car in that championship. So, busy weekend of GT3 racing. We saw some GT4 action. Uh, Full coverage from Pirelli GT4 America can be found at the website, too. John was helping out with some coverage from off-site over the weekend as I was on TV duty. So, a busy weekend for all of us covering sports car racing. There was also a 24-hour race in Barcelona, and we've got some coverage of that on the website, too. So, if you need more on any of these races, be sure to check that out and also be on the lookout for the weekly racing roundup, which covers some of the smaller series that don't often get quite as much attention. So, if you're looking for more results, we've got that for you, too. Up next on Double Stint, we'll turn our attention to the news of the week, and we'll be starting with a hypercar roundup. A lot of news concerning hypercar in this week's edition of the show. That's next on Double Stint. Hi, my name is Tony Rolander. You're listening to Double Stint broadcast on Sports Car 365. Back on Double Stint, let's get to the news here, Dan, and a lot coming out from the various manufacturers involved in the hypercar discussion, including one that we know is going to be on the grid. Aston Martin has uh, certainly made its intentions quite clear, but uh, we've learned a little bit more over the weekend about what this car is actually going to look like, and uh, the, the big takeaway is that it's going to be a non-hybrid powered hypercar for Aston Martin when these regulations come online. Yeah, it certainly will. I, I would probably be best to start off by saying that it, it shouldn't be a surprise that the Valkyrie race car is going non-hybrid. That might seem like a silly thing to say because obviously the Valkyrie limited production hypercar is a hybrid. Um, so it, it seems a bit strange that Aston Martin is changing its tack for, um, for for the innards of the car. But in reality, it doesn't really have any option. The The Valkyrie road car produces over a thousand horsepower. And, and the, the idea of hypercar the first season is for these cars to sort of be um, down-tuned a bit compared to uh, current day LMP1. So you're looking at sort of around 750 horsepower and, and, you know, to 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 have a to have a hybrid system bolted onto something uh, to to a 6.5 liter V12 screaming engine 
in terms of what the WEC is looking for for its regulations, that simply wouldn't work. So, um, uh, but Aston Martin hadn't actually said what the what the powertrain of the car would be like. Um, so it, there are a few few questions floating around in uh, a media roundtable with David King, who's the uh, who's the president of Aston Martin Racing, and he uh, he confirmed the uh, status of that and sort of explained some of the reasons behind it. Um, so Aston Martin, as as we know, has been a, a long time proponent of having non hybrid cars uh, available. They they've been quite uh, quite aggressive almost in in shaping the regulations as they 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 also um, help help start the push um, for uh, pr- production based cars to join production styled hypercars in in the category. So uh, very active. Uh, and and the the recent decision, which was revealed in June, to have non-hybrids competing against hybrids, clearly worked in Aston's favour because they committed on the weekend it was announced. So um, yeah, it's it's it, it's really exciting when we sort of see these these developments, cars, uh, images of cars, and uh, images of it, mental images of what they're going to be looking like on the inside, how they're going to be powered. Uh, it's very interesting. We don't really know what Toyota is going to be doing yet. We do know that Toyota has uh, internally decided how its car how its hybrid gr supersport hypercar will be powered um but exact details of that i'm sure will that's something we'll be chasing up uh in the coming weeks yeah but one thing i do find exciting about the hypercar regulations is we are going to have a pretty good disparity between these cars in terms of how they make their power hybrid non-hybrid what they look like you know prototype based or production based um, and I think that's something that, that fans have been clamoring for for a while that harkens back to days gone by when you weren't 100% sure what was going to show up at the racetrack, different concepts, achieving speed in different ways. And uh, I find that uh, to be uh, maybe the, the exciting aspect of uh, the hypercar regulations, and especially if we can get some more manufacturers on board and have some additional differences between uh, the the various cars in the class, I think that could make for a, a really fun class to to watch and to listen to as well when you get to the racetrack. Oh, absolutely! And you you know the promise of a non hybrid V twelve car racing in the top class for overall honors at Le Mans is just uh, it's it's almost almost unheard of nowadays. I mean, it, it's it's going to be very a very very visceral, uh, aggressive beautiful machine by the sounds of it and uh, we've already seen the car valkyrie on track earlier this summer um and it looks like an absolute beast uh, and but I, you're absolutely right ryan having these different configurations is what makes endurance racing so great and you know when we had the the peak of the lmp1 era um what some might consider to be the peak of the lmp1 era when we had porsche toyota and audi uh, all doing completely different things with their uh, hybrid systems, their their battery systems, their electric motors, very, very different solutions to a problem uh, of how to get the best efficiency out of one of these ultra, ultra fast cars. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing them on track. And as these as these details emerge, you sort of want to get even closer to uh, uh, to booking your tickets for, for, for Le Mans in, in 2021 when we're going to see... Uh, on track at the uh, 8.5 mile circuit for the first time, although they will, uh, as things stand, race for the first time 12 months from exactly now. Yeah, not too far away, amazingly, when it seems like all of these things are, are just on paper at this point. But I'm sure both uh, Toyota and Aston Martin are relatively far along, and uh, it's an ambitious project, no doubt about it. But when you think about how close it is, that does get 
uh, awfully exciting there. How about other manufacturers that might be interested? We've got uh, a couple stories about two, Bentley and Brabham, both keeping a close eye on hypercar developments. Yeah, in- interesting stories. I-, I don't think too many people were were expecting uh, Bentley or, or Brabham actually uh, to 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 sort of show this level of interest. Um, Bentley obviously is a manufacturer with extreme uh, pedigree in the top class at Le Mans, based on its uh, short-lived but extremely successful Speed Eight program. Um, I think everyone would want to see Bentley back. Uh, it- it's uh, it's great that the manufacturer is showing interest and you know it, it look, based on the quotes that we see in the article that uh, john managed to get an interview with bentley's new head of motorsport that uh, studies have been undertaken and and it, it looks as though something you know if, if the right deal came along why not maybe maybe we could see bentley involved in some way um whether on its own or in partnership with someone else who knows um but brabham as well is really interesting because the uh, bt62 was originally touted as a gte pro program um fullamon but now uh, the, the the company isn't ruling out uh using that car for hypercar and to be honest it it looks more like a hypercar right? when i when i first heard the gte announcement i thought uh, really that, that sort of uh it, it almost reminds me more of a prototype than of uh, a, a sports car so very interesting as well that brabham again a, a brand with great heritage is looking at the top class and you know it, it's it's one thing on the other hand, there is one thing to say that you're interested in, another thing to say that you can commit. And I think that's just sort of the final hurdle to overcome for many of these uh, brands is uh, getting those those final handshakes done and uh, getting uh, into the development process, which is a big risk because of the uh, short amount of time we have until uh, wheels start going on track. From the future of the class we now call LMP1 to the present, uh, Rebellion is going to be scaling back to a single entry, it appears, for most of the rest of the WEC season. Not a huge surprise. I think we'd had some reporting to this effect before the season started, that this was a, a likely outcome, but uh, disappointment nevertheless, considering, one, the, the pace of the car that we saw at Silverstone. It was clearly the, the clearest threat to Toyota, but but also just because the, the car count in that class has dwindled now and uh, losing one more, it really hurts even more more so because of the, the relative lack of other participants on the grid. Yeah, absolutely. A, a rebellion, obviously, uh, a mainstay in the one class uh, for, for many years. Raced in LMP2 as well. It's, it's always been there in LMP racing of some description, um, usually with two cars. So it's a shame that we're only going to see one car for the majority of races this season. Um, Callum Buhadra is very, very honest, though, about uh, what what its plans are with the number three. And, and it just doesn't seem like the logistics uh, are adding up for it. He, he said that Rebellion has... Um, in, in its sort of race day department is it has had to reduce its its staff numbers and it's sort of scaling back the program a little bit partly i i think and based on what uh Bihadra was saying I, I think that's probably because rebellion's also looking ahead to what the hypercar regulations might bring perhaps scaling back to one car and having fewer people um, on site in general uh, might open up more opportunities for development in the background. Um, so I, it might not necessarily be a bad thing in the long term for Rebellion to do this. Um, but you know, just just from a pure uh, spectator's perspective, it will be a shame to only have uh, five LMP1 cars at a maximum, it seems, uh, for, those, for the bulk of the season. Uh, but 
that's uh, that's that's clearly a decision that's had a lot of thought going into it and uh uh, at least Rebellion has uh, has kept one car on the full season grid rather than uh, uh, taking both of its cars away. Yeah, good point. We had some news this week as well about the 24 Hours of Le Mans back during the Super Season last year when there were two 24 Hours of Le Mans races within the same season. Le Mans paid one and a half points, or one and a half times the normal WEC points. Uh, we got news that it will be returning to double points this season, and there have been some other adjustments to how points are paid depending on the length of the races in the WEC season. Yeah, so a, a sort of uh, flash update to the sporting regulations that um, I think a few of us missed missed at first opportunity, but uh, it was it was quite hidden away. Um, we will be going back to double points at Le Mans. Um, it's going to be a, a, a decision that's going to prov- provoke debate, as was the original decision to. Uh, make the race 1.5 times points. Um, there, there are so many different opinions about it. I spoke to Paul Dallalon, I had a nice chat with him actually about it um, before uh, Sunday's race, and he said, um, well, you know, it, it can cost people championships having double points if you don't get the result there in the final race, despite all your work earlier in but then again, a lot of people were angry when uh, when, when the, the spectacle of Le Mans was sort of not rewarded with the amount of points that perhaps it should be, sort of respecting the event with uh, by awarding double points for it, because obviously it's far longer than any other race on the calendar. So, um, yeah, lo- lo- lots of opinions. I think it's... Uh, I think it's a good move, actually, um, especially since Le Mans is the final round of the season. And I, I think you can't have a 24-hour race, which is so much longer than any of the other races and not elevate it in, in, a, in, in a greater way. I, I don't know what you think about it, Ryan. Do you think it's a, a, good, a good way of managing the series, maybe creating a bit more excitement at the end of the season? I, it doesn't sit that great with me, to be honest. I know that IndyCar does the same thing with the Indianapolis 500, and I, I don't really think that that's necessary. I, I think the, the, there's a case to be made simply because of the length of the race that perhaps it does deserve a little bit more, but rather than just flat paying double points at the end of the race, maybe paying points at certain distances or certain time uh, segments might be the better way to go. That way, if you are running strong for 12 hours, for instance, you could still score some points, even if you then drop out in hour 13 and, and don't make it to the, the to the finish, and it's not quite as catastrophic um, for you in that case, and still rewards some success over the course of a fairly long distance in the case of 12 hours, for example. I don't know. Do you think that's a reasonable suggestion? Yeah, I think that is a reasonable suggestion. It is something that we've seen employed in in other series before. Um, Having incremental points uh, might make the overall race strategy a bit interesting. We actually saw it in the Spa 24 hours um, this year when the SMP Racing Ferrari, which was going for the Blancpain GT Series Endurance Cup title, put itself out front at, at, at one of the hour points. I think it was a halfway point, um, effectively uh, ruining its strategy in the long run, but mm-hmm. so it could get the points to score, to win the championship there. So, you know, it, it could create some, uh, some real uh, interesting strategies and uh, real high up decisions to be made by some of the teams. You know, do you go for the championship? Do you go for Le Mans? I personally think uh, I might consider Spa perhaps a bit different um, in the context of its championship as Le Mans is in the context of the WEC. Most of the people who do the WEC are there 
for the primary purpose of doing Le Mans because that's the Holy Grail. Maybe there's a slight difference in um, in, in the way people go about it there. But um, yeah, I think it would be an interesting way of doing it. Um, that's not the case uh, this season. We will just be straight up double points at the end. But um, of course, if the drivers and teams aren't happy about it, they've got the freedom to uh, express their opinions. And you know, maybe, maybe we'll see another new model come up next season. And to your point about potentially adding a little bit of strategy to uh, to Le Mans, I, I think that would be welcome right now because uh, the way that the regulations mm. are, you don't see a whole lot of pit strategy affecting the race. We've lamented that on the uh, podcast previously going back the last couple of years. And anything that spices it up from that perspective, I think, would be welcome, at least from a segment, a pretty vocal segment, I might add, of the fan base. So uh, just something to think about there. How about our last topic for the show this week? We've got a standout Audi team, WRT, planning perhaps a move uh, or actually an expansion, I should say, over to the United States to run in uh, IMSA's WeatherTech Championship in the GT Daytona class. Yeah, really cool. I, I, as, as someone who's based in Europe, I know how big WRT is in the GT3 scene over here. Um, not sure about how big the team is over in North America, but it's certainly been involved in a lot of North American races of late. Um, the team went to the Rolex 24 at Daytona for the first time, uh, picked up a podium finish, I think, um, with uh, Audi Canada. Um, and it, it's it's one of those well, well-drilled, well-oiled operations that any championship would love to have because uh, surely it would raise the game of uh, other teams and, and really challenge them. WRT known for being a brilliant team in the pits and uh, for having having great pace on track so you know that would be really awesome to have have them go over there and i think um imsa sort of missing that uh missing that audi presence we've had the starworks entry but that hasn't been full season and i know they've had a few issues there um audi obviously a huge global manufacturer so i think it would it would be uh it it, it would be a shame if it wasn't to in championship in a big way and if it is going to do it it's going to come back with one of its bigger teams yeah very interesting hopefully we do see that come to fruition it would be welcome on the grid for sure well for more on those news stories and plenty of others it's been a busy weekend of uh, and week indeed of sports car racing news check out the website sportscar365.com up next on the podcast we've got a conversation with richard leitz who is part of a winning driver lineup in the wbc Season opener at Silverstone. That is next on Double Stint. Hi, I'm Jeff Siegel, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. Here post-race with Richard Leitz, one half of the winning lineup in GTE Pro for Porsche. And Richard, it was it was a fantastic race. Um, minus two manufacturers this season, but that didn't uh, downplay the excitement that we had in, in the race that we saw. And um, for Porsche, we had a lot of development behind this new car, the new 911 RSR19. Were you quietly confident coming into this race that, that you'd uh, have the have the pace and the outright performance to, to win? Um, I think, I mean, we developed uh, the car over one year, and obviously we... Uh, always used also our backup car uh, the 17 RSR to see how uh, the new car develops um, I did, I did, nobody expected uh, to win because also I think the, the victor came here with uh, the correct strategy with some luck uh, in the right thing at the right time good pit stop crews uh, it did not come because uh, uh, we were the quickest um, so 
I think to, to, to expect the victory was a little bit hard, but to expect to fight for the podium, uh, this was our goal and uh, also what uh, I think was possible from from our side. Um, for us, it's a perfect start. Uh, I think it released some pressure for the people in Weissach who developed it for one year. Uh, the car is good, but still we have to analyze the data now to make the balance even better. Um, because I think that um, with a new tarmac from Silverstone and after the four-hour race, we learn a lot. Uh, and we can improve the car and I hope we do this already for, for Fuji to, to be there uh, from the beginning and um, yeah, and maybe fight for the podium again. And talking about the race, the uh, the conditions changed a, a fair amount during the first half. We had uh, a pretty sharp shower, typical of Silver, Silverstone. Um, how did that impact your race? At the end it's a, only a four-hour race but uh, a lot of things happened in this four-hour race. We had everything, we had slick in the rain, rain in the dry, slick in the right time, so the, it was quite exciting for sure to watch for us driver side also, but it was difficult to make the right strategy call. I think we did it right. The last safety car maybe did not help uh, for the gap to the other manufacturer, but it helped us to come closer to our sister car. And at the end, the uh, undercut from Jimmy uh, brought us in a position to overtake the 92 car, and that's why we finished P1 and P2. So yeah, it was just an exciting race for us. Uh, I think that W see showed again that the competition is good, the racing is nice uh, for sure more manufacturer would be nice but uh, to fight for the podium is as difficult as ever and uh, to win it doesn't matter in which category is always difficult. Absolutely uh, the champagne still tastes just as sweet um, looking ahead though obviously uh, we've got lots of circuits that this car will be racing on for the first time uh, every race is an adventure I suppose for you guys and um, how are you going to tackle Fuji do you think that's going to be a strong track for you? To be honest, uh, from my expectation, I think we will be stronger maybe in Shanghai, maybe Brazil. Um, Fuji is going to be difficult. I mean, we are learning. We're still the first race now just passed. Um, we're still learning, but it's going to be difficult to do better because we already won here. <laughs> so it's not possible to do better. You've set the bar too high now, haven't you? It's, it's true, it's true. Uh, no, but if we have the chance to fight for the podium again, it will be good. I think Fuji will be, uh, at, you know, it's a, from the from the tarmac side different than 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 uh, Silverstone, and uh, we will use different tires. Uh, uh, we don't have too much experience yet with all this. It's still a learning curve. I mean, we try to learn quick. Uh, obviously, it looks like we learned quick, but uh, Fuji will be new. We will, you know, start good prepared and hope for a good result. But uh, to be honest, it's difficult to say how we how we are there because it's new for us. It's just really uh, a new circuit, a new car, the new tires, so it's not, not predictable. Brilliant. Well, we'll see how you get on. You've started in the best possible way, Richard. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Dan Cameron, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. Back on Double Stint, Dan back with me now to answer a listener question that came in from Change It Up. This was posted in the comment section from last week's show. Change It Up writes, has Chip Ganassi asked Aston Martin if they would bring their Vantage to IMSA in GTLM, or is Aston more likely to join GTD if they ever return to the WeatherTech series? Then we had Masked Cosmo, who wanted to add to that, who writes in, 
that he thinks BMW might work for Ganassi as the RLL team in Masked Cosmo's mind is not getting the job done right now. Uh, I'll address the last bit first. I, I know that BMW always puts this up for bid every year. Several teams have been in the mix for the BMW contract in recent years when I would say BMW or RLL or whatever have been struggling a lot more than they are right now, and they haven't made a change. So I don't see that change imminent. Uh, Regarding Ganassi, I think it's safe to say at this point they have asked anybody, anybody who who could potentially have a, a GTLM program, they probably had at least exploratory conversations with Whether or not it's Aston Martin, uh, that would be a likely option. Or if they specifically have talked to Aston Martin, I can't say definitively. I'd say there's a good chance they at least had a conversation. I know, Dan, you've done some digging about Aston's potential uh, involvement in racing stateside with customer programs recently. Uh, What can you tell us about those conversations? So uh, Aston Martin, obviously a brand with with considerable interest in North America. Um, it, it's been uh, quite quite tempting, really, that Aston Martin has, has sort of hovered over North America for quite a while, but it's never really, really uh, taken the plunge and, and supported a, a big program in a, in a little while. Um, what Aston Martin does have in North America is um, recently it set up a, a North American uh, distributor for sales and support of the Aston Martin Vantage GT3 and GT4. Um, so that, that's a company called CSJ Motorsports um, set up last year by entrepreneur Susan and Cy Jarry. Um, and the aim there is uh, is for Aston Martin to have a support network for, for parts and sales. Um, CSJ won't be running any teams or involved in any of the logistics, but it's about creating that base, creating um, a bit of trust in the local markets in IMSA and SRO. Uh, and just getting around the paddock a bit, and and uh, we, we we're seeing Aston Martin Vantages performing pretty well in uh, Mich- IMSA Michelin Pilot Challenge, um, and also the fact that Aston sent Ross Gunn over to take part in the last race, one of its factory drivers, um, shows that there is a clear interest from, not just uh, from from uh, from customers for Hats, but also from the uh, actual Aston Martin Racing Organization back race back in the UK. So uh, yeah, it, it's it's baby steps at the moment, but I you know you, you can't ever rule out Aston Martin, uh, a, a brand that's obviously involved in international motorsport elsewhere, uh, into a, a growing market. All right, so uh, I know that doesn't directly answer the question. Frankly, I think it's uh, it would be speculation at this point to draw any links between Ganassi and Aston Martin. Again, all I know for sure on the Ganassi side is that they are actively trying to stay involved in the sport in some capacity, and I, su- I suppose that if it aligned with what Aston Martin's ambitions were in the U.S., then there would be a possibility, but uh, safe to say I've not heard anything more definitive than that at this point, and... Uh, I don't think any announcement to that effect is imminent, but there's certainly time. Things can change, and I think Ganassi's interest in pursuing the um, uh, a continued presence in sports car racing and Aston Martin's increased interest uh, in recent years in the North American market from a motorsports perspective maybe makes it more likely than it would have been in years past, but uh, still a lot of hurdles to clear for sure. Thank you, though, for writing in, both of you, uh, Change It Up and Masked Cosmo. do appreciate you writing in. And if you guys have questions for us on our next show, we would love to have them. If you leave them in the comments section or use the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter, we'll be sure to get to them 
on our show next week. That's going to do it for us, though, here this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks as well to Dan for joining us after a busy weekend to help break down everything that has transpired in the last week or so. We'd love a rating and a review on iTunes as well if you have the time to help get the word out about the show and also provide a bit of direction for us as we continue to evaluate the format and try and make changes as requested to provide the best possible show to you, the listener. That's it for us this week. Talk to you next time with our next edition of the Double Stint Podcast. (laughs) 